Good evening, everyone. If you want to go ahead and get out your lesson books, uh, we'll be continuing on in Lesson 7, which is on page 13. Lesson 7, page 13. Last week, uh, we began 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we had been discussing the relationship between David and Jonathan. And uh, we got most of the way through the chapter, uh, and we had just started talking about David trying to escape once again from Saul. I think this is a little, a little loud. Is that, is that okay? Is that good? All right. We've been talking about David trying to escape from Saul again, and he had just been let out uh, through a window by his wife uh, in an attempt to escape. And so I just want to briefly reread that passage from 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19, starting in verse 11, it says, Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, informed him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothing. When Saul sent messengers to David, or to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed so that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you betrayed me like this? And let my enemy go, so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? And so we're picking up on question 11. Question 11 says, Since, according to its heading... Psalms 59 was written with the, back, uh, with the background of verses 11 through 17. What state of mind is reflected in this psalm? And so here we're directed over to Psalm 59. So let's go ahead and turn there. Psalm 59. As a side note, as you're studying uh, through First and Second Samuel, Many of the Psalms were written during these times, and it's, it's very helpful to be able to go back and connect those Psalms to these events that take place. It gives you better insight into the nature of the Psalm and also better insight into uh, the narrative of First and Second Samuel. But turning over to Psalms 59, it says, Prayer for Rescue from Enemies. It says, For the music director, set to Al-Tashheth, a mictum of David when Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill him. David says, Rescue me from my enemies, my God. Set me securely high away from those who rise up against me. Rescue me from those who practice injustice, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men attack me, not for wrongdoing, nor for my sin, Lord, for no guilt of mine. They run and take their stand against me. Stir yourself to help me and see you, Lord God of armies, the God of Israel, awake to punish all nations. Do not be gracious to any who deal treacherously in wrongdoing. 
They return at evening, they howl like a dog, and they prowl around the city. Behold, they gush forth with their mouths, swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength I will watch for you, for God is my refuge. My God in his faithfulness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my enemies. Do not kill them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, may they even be caught in their pride, and on account of curses and lies which they tell. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them so that they will no longer exist, so that the people may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of all earth. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and prowl around the city. They wander about for food and murmur if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I will sing your strength. Yes, I will joyfully sing your faithfulness in the morning, for you have been my refuge and a place of refuge on the day of my distress. My strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my refuge, the God who shows me favor. Okay, so given the events that are happening in 1 Samuel, and this psalm that David penned during that time, what is David's state of mind? Matt? It's kind of a combination of things. It's, sure. He feels in battle because of everything they're after him, right? Worried yeah. and fear that we'd expect that. But then there's also this sense that he's trusting in God, and that's often how the psalms will end with that trusting. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Did anyone have any other answers? A little bit of a panic and running for his life at the same time that I'm, but I rely and trust on you, and you're going to take care of it, and you're going to punish them, and you're going to you're going to take care of it. So I know that it's going to be okay, but there's still that you know I'm on the run, and they're after my blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that because David is running from this, that that displays a lack of faith on his part? He didn't run from Goliath, so would running in this situation from his enemies display a lack of faith? I see shaking heads. Why not? Well, Saul was his king, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to be killed by Saul, but he didn't want to have to injure Saul. Right. So he is better off getting out of town, it's so to speak, than to come into a contact with God. Yeah, I think that's a great way to sum it up. David was in a rock and a hard place when it came to Saul. Saul was God's anointed, and we know that David respects God's word, and he doesn't want to lift his hand against God's anointed, right? So in terms of taking direct action, direct action against Saul, his hands are really tied. He doesn't have that option the way that he did with Goliath, who is very clearly God's enemy, and God was authorizing direct action against him. And so in this case, David chooses to flee and allow for God to work things out in the manner that he would have them to work out. And I think all the answers that we've heard so far about the faith and the trust in God for deliverance is all reflected there in this, uh, in this Psalm 59, 
and shows that David did, in fact, have faith. He wasn't running due to a lack of faith. So all good, all good thoughts there. Uh, but before we move on to the next section, was there any other comments or questions that anyone had on this particular piece? Verses 11 to 17. Yeah, that's a good point. David didn't want his enemies slain. And that's a very uh, interesting thing to note about David because that comes up more than once. Um, David didn't want his enemies killed. He didn't want to kill Saul. He didn't want to have to resort to that. And here when people are pursuing him, he didn't want them killed. He actually says um, in verses in Psalm 59, in verse 11, he says, do not kill them or my people will forget. Instead, he asked God to scatter them. He doesn't want the enemies killed because then there are no enemies. There is no threat, right? And people are going to forget that God is their deliverer. Right. Dude, these, are, these were Saul's people, so these are other Israelites, right? Were, right. Again, he's got that care. He doesn't want to kill his own people. I mean, right. So he's cautious about all of that. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's go ahead and drop down to verses 18 to 24 in 1 Samuel 19. So flip back over to 1 Samuel 19, and we'll read 18 down to 24. It says, So David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he informed him of everything Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. But it was reported to Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When Saul was informed of this, he sent other messengers, but they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, yet they prophesied. Then he went to Ramah himself, and came as far as the large well that is, that is in Seku, And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. So he proceeded there to Nioth in Ramah. But the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Nioth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all day and all night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So question 12 says, why did David go to Ramah? He went to Samuel. He went to Samuel. Why? What's the point in going to see Samuel? Matt? He's, he's fleeing, but he's, he's fleeing to a friend. He's fleeing to a friend. He's fleeing to someone he knows, right? I would say that he's fleeing to a figure of God's authority, right? In Psalm 59, he had talked about God being his shield. So he's fleeing to essentially what amounts to the, the best uh, shield he has on earth, right? Where God's presence would be the strongest, so to speak. A mentor, I think. A mentor, Yeah. Yes. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. Sam, or, um, David had been anointed by Samuel at this point, but it wasn't 
widely spread yet, right? It wasn't known that David was anointed by many people, but Samuel knows. And so going to him is, uh, again, having that friendship. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For a while there, um, like we said, Samuel had been God's voice, had been the, the priest there. And he helped in the process of Saul being appointed and chosen, right? So he has some measure of authority coming from God, of course, over Saul. So you think, too, maybe he was looking for word through Samuel direct from God. Maybe he's looking for some kind of help or direction in that sense. It doesn't say specifically, mm -hmm. but I'm just thinking that kind of direction you might be looking for. Yeah, it could be. I mean, he could have been looking for um, he could have been looking for direction in terms of what do I do now, right? He could have been looking for that or some other divine protection. Maybe he doesn't even know what he needs and he's just going for help from the most likely source. And it does come, right? In a very odd way. Which leads us into question 13. What prevented Saul from overtaking David? Everyone he sent, they prophesied. Everyone he sent, they prophesied. Yeah. So he tried that three times, right? And all his messengers, they got, they got before Samuel and they just started prophesying. So, then what? He decides to go, right? And how does that work out for him? He prophesies also, right? And more than that, Saul gets humbled, yeah. right? Because what, is, what does it say? It said he stripped off his clothes and laid down naked, prophesying all day and all night in front of Samuel, right? Pretty humiliating for a king to be doing that, right? So Saul meets a wall in the spirit of God. Right, God's spirit comes upon him, and it, it humbles him. It leaves him unable to do what he wants to do. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, that last verse there, the very last part of verse 24, it says that basically it became a saying, and you can tell kind of from the tone of this that it's not flattering to Saul. It says, therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? You know, they're kind of mocking Saul for this. You know, Saul ended up laying down all night prophesying. Is Saul among the prophets? You know? Any other thoughts on that? No? It's just a really interesting uh, verse to me. I, I'd, I'd be curious to know what more they were prophesying about. You know? Prophecy is when... You know, God's word comes upon someone and, and they predict what's going to occur. So I want, I have to wonder what they were talking about, what was going to happen. Maybe he was predicting that he was going to be replaced by David. So maybe it was referring to events that were soon to happen. Maybe he was prophesying things much further in the future. Donna? I don't know. I can certainly see how from verse 24 that's implied. Maybe they did as well. If he also stripped off his clothes, that's a good catch. Matt? And some of the things I read, I mean, when we read that, we think he's completely naked. 
it seems like perhaps, uh, you know, as a king, as you're saying, he had his kingly clothes, mm -hmm. right? And so he's humbling himself by taking those off. But they would typically have some sort of undergarment. Mm -hmm. and they would be considered naked at that stage. So we might have to think, we might need to keep that in mind. No, that's a good, that's a very good point to call out. Um, a lot of times the way that some words are used in the Bible in their culture was not necessarily what we think of in our culture. And so that's a very good call out. For them, uh, stripping off their clothes doesn't necessarily, or being naked could still mean basically being in your underwear or, or uh, another layer of garments. So the first group of fellows maybe, maybe took their, their uniforms off to mm -hmm. show that they're no longer soldiers or messengers or whatever for Saul and, and then similarly Saul takes his kingly garb off. Right. All right. So we're now we're going to jump over to chapter 20, continuing on here. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter all at once because you'll get bored on me. But we will read a couple verses here and then we'll jump into the first question in this section. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, and let's see, we will read, let's read down to verse 16 to start. It says, Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah, and when he came, he said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without informing me. So why would my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father is well aware that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Jonathan is not to know this, otherwise he will be worried. But indeed, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is just a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I am obligated to sit down and eat with the king. But let me go so that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly requested leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. And if he says that is good, your servant will be safe. But if he, if he is very angry, be aware that he has decided on evil. So deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if I am guilty of wrongdoing, kill me yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I in fact learn that my father has decided to inflict harm on you, would I not inform you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will inform me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out to the field. So they both went out to the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, is my witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he has a good feeling toward you, shall, shall I not then send word to you and inform you? If it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to me and more so if I fail to inform you and send you away so that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the faithfulness of the Lord so that I do not die? And you shall never cut off your loyalty to my house, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David 
from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord demand it from the hands of David's enemies. Okay. So with those verses in mind, oh, yeah. On this uh, naked and, and prophesying all day and night, I have to reference Isaiah 22 and 3, which is very interesting. Um, it's talking about Isaiah. The Lord instructed him to uh, be naked. Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. He did that for three years barefoot in verse 3. Which, which chapter and verse? Isaiah 20. 20, uh, okay. Two and three. Isaiah 20, 2 and 3. And he did it for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. Yeah, there are times when, I mean, if you think of the burning bush and Moses and taking off his sandals, you know, there have been times when um, men have been instructed to take off different pieces of clothing. And again, it's all with the idea of the fact that you're humbling yourself or you are, uh, I guess, exposing yourself by taking off those vestments. You're, you're in God's presence, right? There's nothing separating you. So a lot of times this is used as a symbolic way to show that closeness to God, that God's presence, the space around him is holy. So yeah, there, there's definitely precedence for that, um, that type of behavior. Well, it says in verse 3 of Isaiah 20, uh, then the Lord said, This is not servant Isaiah, have walked naked and barefoot for three years. Mm -hmm. And they took off his back. Yeah. So he did walk on the outer garments he took off. He was, yeah. He was instructed by God to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good verse. It's something that we wouldn't do today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I think if we were instructed directly by God like that, we would probably obey that. Um, but yeah, luckily that's not something that's asked of us today. Okay, so jumping back over to First uh, Samuel chapter twenty. Now, question fourteen is very similar to one we've answered earlier in this lesson, and so I think what we're really driving at is based on this particular chapter. It says. How can the relationship between David and Jonathan be summarized and explained? Any thoughts there? They were like brothers. They loved each other. And they mm -hmm. trusted each other. And yep. Jonathan reported to David when his dad was angry and ready to kill David. And, like, and you know, they were very close. They were very close, yeah. I know earlier, in earlier chapters, it said that Jonathan loved him as a brother, and so we answered that question earlier. Um, that was actually question one of the lesson. It said, describe the friendship of David and Jonathan. But here, it's asking us to summarize that relationship again. So really, this is focused specifically on chapter 20. Rick? Uh, well, they, they've made a covenant together. They are agreeing to watch out for and help each other as brothers would do. Mm -hmm. And 
In the very next verse in 17, you know, it says Jonathan loved David as himself. So he's yep. really keen on watching over David. And I think, is Jonathan not the older one of the two anyway? So he may look at I him think he is. I'd have to go back and double check, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Addie, what were you saying? I forgot. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. I, did you, Matt, did you have? Um, there also seems to be something. I'm not sure if there's a verse that exactly says it, but it seems like Jonathan recognizes that David should be king through God's will. Because it should be by normal circumstance, Jonathan should expect to be king, but he's, he's not concerned about that. He's, he's all in. Yeah, I think you actually just answered question 15 for us. <laughs> uh, you know, this this was a harder question, and after I thought about it, I thought that the answer that I gave was really revolved around that covenant um, that Rick mentioned. I think that what, what the author of the workbook is going for here is that before they, they were friends, they were very close friends like brothers, but now they're bound by a covenant at this point. Right. They're, they're members of this covenant. And I don't I hesitate to say they're they're conspirators together because that makes it sound like they're doing something wrong. But they're now together in this effort to keep David alive and out of Saul's plots. Right. So they're working together um, kind of undercover here towards that purpose. So that's kind of how I explained it. But I. Yeah, Rick. Sorry. There, there is an implication. If you look at let's see, which uh, verse is this? My numbering is small. Where Jonathan says, and I think it's 13, and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, kind of implying that he believed, you know, because the Lord was with Saul at first, kind of implying that he knows or thinks David will yeah. succeed Saul. You could take it that way. Yeah. And that's a good point. And honestly, let's just jump down to ver or question 15, because that's what we're kind of leading into now. It says, what understanding about David does Jonathan express in verses 13 to 16? And really, I think you and Matt have covered it, is that at this point, I think it's very evident that Jonathan knows David is going to become king. Look at the promise that he asks him to make. What was that promise? Jonathan asked David to make a specific promise to him. What was that? Never cut off his kindness to his family, right? He talks about that God defeating the enemies of David, right? I think Saul or, uh, Jonathan understands that Saul is rapidly falling into that category of becoming an enemy of God and of David. And he suspects very strongly, I think, uh, that David is the next king, which, like Matt pointed out, um, you would normally expect Jonathan, he's the prince, he would be more likely to be a king than David would be. But Jonathan understands that God is backing David now, not him. And if we'll get to this in, in later, uh, later sections, but David does honor that promise that he makes with Jonathan. You can see that if you go um, to 2 Samuel, you can see it in chapters 9 and again in chapters 21, where David keeps that promise that he makes to Jonathan. But we'll, we'll go more in depth to that when we get there. Next is question 16. It says, describe the signal by which Jonathan would let David know what he should do. 
So they come up with a signal, right? So we, we need to know how Saul's going to react to this, right? How Saul's going to react to David's absence. And so actually, first, let's talk about that for a minute. What's their overall plan here? Before we get to how they're going to signal each other, what's the plan? How are they going to find out whether or not Saul is really after David's life? Jonathan knows his father quite well. And he, he, he then could tell David what his father was going to do. Mm -hmm. Well, why would David not know? He's not going to be at the feast, right? Where's David going to be? He's going to be hiding. They have an excuse in place as to why David's not there. What is that? Going to Bethlehem. Going to Bethlehem. For a sacrifice. For a yearly sacrifice, right? A family. A yearly family sacrifice. Now, we can see that if you, if you read through the chapter here, Saul is not surprised by David's absence when he hears the, the first excuse, or when he doesn't show up at first. He actually thinks it's due to uncleanliness. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 24 to 34, when David fails to show up, Saul just thinks it's uncleanliness. And if you refer back to Leviticus chapter 22, you can see that there were a lot of times where someone would, you know, touch a dead thing or something like that, they would get themselves unclean and they were to separate themselves and purify themselves. And that typically lasted one day for most of those ritual purifications. So Saul's expectation is, okay, he missed the first night. He probably, you know, became impure and he's just got to go purify himself. So I'll see him on night two. But he doesn't show up then. That's when they have to use the excuse of David going to Bethlehem. Now, my question to you is, is it a lie that they told that David's going to Bethlehem? Because as far as I know, David's just hiding out in a field during this whole time. So what do you think? Did they act righteously there by what they told Saul? Or is this a human error that was just permitted in the sake of history here? I'm going to give you guys a clue. I don't know the answer. I'm waiting on you to tell me. I think it's a lie. <laughs> I would lean that way too, Donna. I think as we learn from the Old Testament, there are a lot of things that you wouldn't permit that God has. You know, like yeah. that lot being the father of his grandchildren. You know. there, are a lot of, there are a lot of mistakes that happen. Right, that are permitted to happen, but they're not endorsed by God. Rick? In this case, I think it's similar to like Rahab. The lie was to protect the life of someone who was innocent. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that sense, there are times when we've seen throughout history where people protected innocent people and they had the lie to protect those people. And I would say that God does back that, but that's me. Kind of like when people would break the Sabbath save someone in a well. I mean, it's sort of a common sense thing. Well, we have to keep the Sabbath law, but it's more important because my son died in this well, or my donkey eats in this well. Right. Yeah. So this is this is a really tricky one. And like, this has been, oh, Judy? Yeah. Here it says that Jonathan said, uh, tells him 
that he asked permission to go to Bethlehem. He did not actually, according to this, he didn't actually say he was in Bethlehem. So A lot of technicalities right there, right? Yeah. It's not technically a lie. I am asking you permission to go to Bethlehem. You have my permission. I'm not actually going to take it and use it and go. I just want to know that I could do it. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell Saul, my dad, that you asked permission, right? I think back, I think back to, um, to the way that Gideon defeated some of his enemies and they sort of used trickery and they were sort of instructed to do it that way, right? Where they, you know, they, they had the, the torches covered by the pots and they broke the pots. Now it looks like there's thousands of men when there's really only a couple hundred men, you know? So there are times when people are clever, clever in the Bible like that. Um, I also think a lot of it goes to the spirit of what you're trying to do. Just like Matt said, right? What, what is someone trying to do? And he used a great example of actually coming up with David and uh, the bread on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus refers to that in Matthew and talks about that, where God requires compassion above sacrifice, right? So taking into account what you're trying to do, what your motivation is, that goes a long way, right? And the bottom line is we're going to make errors in judgment, but God knows everything about what we're trying to do. He knows the situation we're in. He knows all the circumstances. He knows what we're thinking and why we're thinking it. And he is the most fair judge that we can have. So in the end, God's going to be able to weigh that out and be more fair than any human judge could ever be. So I don't know if we really came to a conclusion on that or not, but I just thought it was worth discussing. It was an interesting point that we kind of skip over with these question here, questions here. But moving on to the signal. So they have a signal to say whether or not Saul is happy or whether he's angry. So what's this signal that they come up with? He's going to go uh, shoot arrows. And depending on what he tells the boy to go pick up the arrows, go farther or whatever, that's going to represent whether or not he's yeah. So he's going to shoot these three arrows out towards a target or into the field. I was a little fuzzy on that point, but he shoots these arrows out. And then he's got a servant, a little kid, and he says, go get those arrows for me. So the kid runs out to get the arrows. And Saul's going to yell out to the boy, and he's going to tell him one of two things. Aren't they closer to me? Or he's going to say, I think they're further out from you, right? He's going to tell him one of those two things. Now, if he says, I think they're further out, you need to go out further to get them. That's, that's David's cue that he needs to go, right? But if he tells them, I think they're on this side of you, then that's David's cue to stay. So that's the, the clever signal that they come up with. I don't know why he needed three arrows to shoot, why, why one wasn't good enough, but he shot three. So question 17 says, what suspicion did Saul begin to entertain in, verse, or in chapter 18, verse 18, and by verse 31, holds as a matter of certainty. And just as a reminder, in 18, in 18 verse 18, that's, that's uh, the, the song, remember? That David had slain his thousands, his tens of thousands. And so he had started to become suspicious of David by that point. Now in verse 31, 
Let's just read verse 31 here. It says, um, it says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, this is Saul talking to Jonathan. He says, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now then send men and bring him here to me for he is doomed to die. So what is the suspicion of Saul that he now thinks is certain? Saul was sure that David was going to become king and he wanted to kill him. Saul thinks he's out of a job. Yep. And with that, I'm actually a little past time, so I'm going to stop here. And we will pick up next week in Lesson 8. So if you want to go ahead and read ahead, read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. Thank you, everyone.